Welcome to the Way Family Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you're here with us. Join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at Lafayette Middle School in Tucson, Arizona. We're going to be in chapter 23 of Acts today. Um, and I've titled this Under Trial. Uh, just to give you a quick recap of what's been going on. The last, uh, the last couple of Sundays, we devoted them to the Easter season. And so we had the triumphal entry. We had the, uh, we had the, the resurrection. We took a break from our study in Acts, but now we're coming back to it. The book of Acts is about what happened after the resurrection. So we saw that Jesus went to Jerusalem. He was uh, arrested. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was crucified. He was buried. But then he was resurrected. And so what happens next? We saw that many, over 500 people, witnessed the risen Jesus, right? Well, what happens next is actually here in the book of Acts. Um, and this is the account of the early church, the, how the, the, the Christian church was founded. And so we've been going through, through this, and it actually has been, um, I think, almost a year since we started Acts. And we're almost done with it, okay? I promise we'll finish this year. <laughs> um, but the book of Acts is that. It's the early account of the church. And so after Jesus is resurrected, he meets with his disciples and he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit descends on them and they're empowered. Uh, in fact, I would say that the theme of Acts is verse, uh, or chapter 1, verse 8. It says, and and you, will, and you will be empowered when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses everywhere, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's exactly what happens, is the Lord Jesus commissions his disciples, his learners, to go and bear witness of him, to go and bear witness of the things that he has taught, the things that he has shown, the things that he has said, the things that, everything about him. Um, and so the apostles take this very seriously from what we can see. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit indeed, and they go and they start making what we call, um, they, they start turning the world upside down, right? Uh, and that's actually the, the, the language that's used in scriptures because people are freaking out. It's like, what are these guys preaching? Now, if you remember, for those who were gathering with us in the early days, we talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and just the different groups that kind of ruled uh, Jerusalem at the time. Today, we're going to look a lot uh, into the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these were the religious leaders of the time, but they've, they've di they differed very much. They're both Jewish groups, but they had different philosophy, different theology, and different political everything, pretty much. And so with that, they also formed what we call the council. It's called the Sanhedrin. And so this is the same council that, Ju that Jesus stood before when he was tried. And so it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And the, the main person, or the, I'll say the, the person who led the Sanhedrin was the high priest. And the high priest at the time of Jesus was a Sadducee by the name of Caiaphas. Now we're fast forwarding a little bit in time, and now we are looking at the account of Paul as he returns to Jerusalem. Caiaphas is no longer in power. It is now someone called Ananias. But we will see that Paul does not recognize Ananias. Okay, and so we're going to dive into that. So here's where we are, just kind of where we left off. The, a, a few weeks ago, we left off in the sense that Paul is returning to Jerusalem and a lot of his friends urged him not to go because they knew that when Paul would arrive at Jerusalem, 
bad things would happen for him. It wasn't going to be a warm welcome. People didn't like Paul. The Jews didn't like Paul. Uh, nevertheless, Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem because he was on mission. Not only did he have to go back and report to those who sent them, sent him as a missionary, as an apostle, but he also had a gift from the Gentile churches. It was a financial monetary gift. Why? Because if you remember in early Acts, the church of Jerusalem was very generous. Everyone was giving everything that they had. And the Bible describes, uh, I would say, the, the situation as uh, no one was lacking anything. Everybody had their needs met. And it was just this beautiful picture of the church just investing into itself. People were selling things, giving away things. They were just investing into the early church. Now, this is where the Sanhedrin reigns. This is the epicenter of Judaism, Jerusalem is. And so the resources are depleted, right? Persecution grows in Jerusalem. And so the, the, the Jews in, or the Christians in Jerusalem are now found in need. And so the churches, the Gentile churches send this monetary gift to relief, to relieve the church in Jerusalem. And so there goes Paul, completely aware that if he steps foot in Jerusalem, uh, he would be bound and imprisoned and incarcerated and maybe even killed. Nevertheless, he says, to him to live is Christ and to die is gain. There was absolutely nothing that would prevent him from following through to the mission of the mission that Jesus himself gave Paul. And he says, you must go to Jerusalem. And so there he is, he goes and sure enough, he gets to Jerusalem. You, he is welcomed, thank God. Nothing terrible happens upon his arrival. But then James, who is the elder, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, says, Hey, Paul, there's a lot of Jews here who are saying things about you. Christian Jews, believers. They're thinking that you're teaching that we should have completely abolish the law. And Paul's like, that's not what I'm about. You know, I'm not preaching that we should abolish the law. Christ came to fulfill the law not to abolish it. And so James has a plan and he says, why don't you take these guys who are under oath and pay for their costs so that they can go to the temple and do everything that they have to do to, to finish the oath, the oath, to shave their head and whatnot, so that the believing Jews could see that you are still in fact a Jew. Now Paul submits to his authorities and he says, Sure, I don't necessarily have to do that. He doesn't say that, but he knows that. He doesn't necessarily have to do that, but he's willing to do it. And so he goes, goes to the temple, and then he's accused of breaking a very sacred law. No Gentile is to enter the holy place, the holy courts of the temple. And he is accused of bringing a Gentile into it. Now, Paul knew better, and he did not, in fact, bring anybody in there because he, he knew that it would cause trouble. Nevertheless, he's accused of it, and there's this riot stirs up, and they're so violent that the Bible says that the Roman tribune had to carry him out of there because they were trying to kill Paul. He did nothing wrong, and here he is in a very sticky situation. You would think that maybe he would be incarcerated or hated for saying something, right? But he had done nothing wrong except for being Paul. And so now the tribune has him, and he's trying to figure out, okay, Paul, what did you do? There's something about you that the people hate and you're not telling us. We're going to find out what you did. And so Paul says, hey, can you let me speak to them? And he says, sure, go ahead. Hoping that he would have answers to why people hate Paul so much. 
And so he speaks and Paul gives his defense. And we talked about this three weeks ago, his defense meaning his testimony. He, he shares about who he was. He had common ground with the Jews there in Jerusalem. And then he shares what happened. What happened was I met Jesus, this guy that I was persecuted, per persecuting appears to me. And then what happens next is now I serve him. He has commissioned me to go and make disciples of all nations to bear witness of what I know of him. And so once, you know, everything's going well, but then Paul says the trigger word. And he says, I was commissioned to go to the Gentiles. Ah, the Gentiles, we don't like the Gentiles. You see, the Jews had this very, uh, it was very important for them to be God's chosen people. You know, God had chosen the Jews for a special thing. And the idea of the Gentiles to be able to be grafted in was just absurd to them. And they did not like that. And so for that reason, they hated Paul. And, uh, and here he is. <clears throat> Here's Trof uh, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, Claudius Lysias, which you haven't heard that name, but that's the name of the, the um, tribune, the Roman tribune who has arrested Paul, still clueless as to what's going on. He says, I still don't know why they hate you so much. What have you done that's wrong? And so he decides, we're going to get the truth out of you by flogging, right? Which means we're going to hit you until you tell us what's going on. And then right before they're about to flog him, Paul says, hold on a second. Isn't it illegal for you to flog a Roman citizen who's not condemned? Wait, you're a Roman citizen? So Paul pulls out this citizenship card, right? He says, wait a minute, this is wrong for you guys to do. And so the tribune says, hold on a second, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. Could you afford such a thing? Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth. I was born into it. Whoa, okay. So we have to take a little bit more special care with this. We can't hit Paul because it is unlawful for us to hit Paul. If we hit Paul, he could press charges on us Roman soldiers. And so they back off and still having no clue what's going on with Paul. They try to do something else. And that's where we are. Was that a good recap? OK, that was a long recap. All right. <clears throat> but it's been a couple of weeks at least since we got there. So uh, chapter 23. We're actually going to start just a little bit before that uh, in chapter 22, verse 30. And it says, it says this, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. 
It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees says, say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees uh, acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. <clears throat> what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would allow us, Lord Jesus, help us understand this, Lord, in a way that's just really effective, Father, as far as how we live this word, Father. When we live it out, let us be doers, Lord Jesus, of your word, not just hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> so the persecution continues. Paul arrives and already he's in trouble and he didn't do much to get there. But today I want to look at four different things. As I, as I read this, I see like four different sections here. And I want to show you so that you're following along in your Bibles. The first thing I want to look at is the confrontation. Uh, the confrontation happens here in the beginning. That's the thing that really stirs up the, the group, the Sanhedrin. The next thing we see is the conflict. Um, then the clamor or the commotion. I used clamor because it says clamor here, the big, great clamor arose. And then the, the last part is the source of courage. And just as you look at this, maybe you can relate this to a real life situation currently. And so just keep that in mind and in heart as we read through this. And, and so before we look into that confrontation, um, this, this tribune, who we will learn later, his name is Claudius Lysias. So Lysias, he wants to know why Paul is being accused by the Jews. And so he therefore commands the Sanhedrin or the council to meet to examine Paul. He still has no idea why Paul is hated so much. And so this is the best next thing. Okay, if he's on trial with the council, then we will find out what's wrong with Paul. What's, what's his deal? And so again, I talked about the Sanhedrin br briefly, also known as the council. And I have a picture just so you guys have a visual about it, uh, of it. Uh, it is made up of two major groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There's about 35 of each group. The high priest sits in the middle, middle and then the accused person right smack dab in the middle of them. And so there's also room for clerks or scribes to document what's going on. And if you are a student of the law, you get to also partake in this and just kind of see what's happening. And so this is what it looks like. And if you can see that, that shadowy character, it says the accused, that's where Paul is going to stand and be tried. That's exactly where Jesus stood when he was tried by the Sanhedrin. And so this is the group that Claudius Lysias uh, calls to examine Paul. I want to know why he's hated find out because I need answers. As of now, people want to kill him and I have no right to do anything about it. And so it says in verse 30, if we go back to 22 verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. Unbound means he just took the chains off of him. Remember he was chained by two soldiers? So he unbinds him just so that he could go and be presented to the Sanhedrin. He is still a prisoner though. Got it? 
And he commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, here's the confrontation. It's in verse 1 of chapter 23. Check this out. It says, And looking intently at the council. He says he's looking intently at the council. Think about this. Think about who Paul was. He was a Pharisee himself. And so he's not intimidated in the least, least bit with these guys. This is like been there, done that for Paul. This room that you saw there was very familiar for him, okay? It's very likely that even Paul was there as a student when Jesus was tried. Who knows? But this was not something that he was intimidated by the least bit. And he says, he looks intently at the council, the Sanhedrin, and then Paul says, brothers. Now, this is kind of a big deal because usually you don't address the Sanhedrin like that. Usually, when you address the Sanhedrin, you say rulers and elders, or you call them brothers and fathers. There's always this sense of authority, this sense of respect. Nevertheless, Paul's looking intently at them. He's saying, brothers, he counts himself as equals with this Sanhedrin. Why? <laughs> because he knows these guys, right? He was there, and he was one of the top students. I would say he was valedictorian status, right? And he counts them as equals, and he says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now think about this. He's saying, I have lived my life in all good conscience. Now this good conscience, I really want to talk about it a little bit, and I'll talk about more about it. He says, my conscience is clear. You know, how many times can we say this? He says, in all good conscience, did you know that our conscience can only be cleared if we know truth? Think about that. If, we're, if, if our conscience, if our mind is not informed by the truth of Scripture, then how do we know for right or wrong? You know, like Pinocchio had Jiminy Cricket as his conscience. Remember that? That Jiminy Cricket was the one who knew the thing or two about life, right? And so he was the one who was able to tell Pinocchio, who knew nothing about life, what was right and what was wrong. And so he says, my conscience is good, saying that he is well informed of the scriptures and he knows that he has behaved and lived in a way that is righteous according to the word of God. And so what he does here is he kind of turns the tables on them. He says, uh, up to this day, I've, I've lived in good conscience. And so in other words, he says, I've done nothing wrong before God. And by making this claim, Paul put the members of the council or the Sanhedrin on the defense. Since Paul has only acted in obedience to God, then by opposing Paul, these guys would actually be fighting God, is what he's saying. Hey, I've lived in good conscience. I know what I've done. I know where I stand. What's your excuse, in other words, right? And so this is the conflict that we, that we see here, or the confrontation, sorry. He's c confronting these people who are supposedly authority figures. Nevertheless, Paul knows where they stand, and he is not in the least bit intimidated. So that's the confrontation. And so let's go on. There's no guilt here from Paul. And then verse 2 says, And the high priest Ananias. Let me talk to you about Ananias for a second. I want you guys to understand the situation here. Now, Ananias, you saw the way that he responded. He said immediately, he commanded one of his soldiers to just smack him in the mouth. And you saw that it triggered Paul, right? Ananias is, is interesting because uh, Josephus, a, a first century histori historian, actually writes about this high priest. Remember, he's the one who succeeds Caiaphas, the one who tried Jesus. But he was not an ordinary high priest. In fact, he was um, referred to or known to according to Josephus, 
as the one of the most cruel, evil, corrupt high priests ever. He was quick-tempered. This was Ananias, the high priest. And it's very likely that Paul didn't know this guy because if you remember, he's been traveling. He's been doing what he was called to do, to make disciples of all. He was planting churches out in the rest in the Gentile regions of the world. So he might have not been aware of who Ananias was, but this is Ananias, just a very corrupt high priest. He says, Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Wow, can you imagine that? That's low. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Whoa, right? When you read that, you think, whoa, what did, what did he just say? <laughs> that sounds racist, doesn't it? <laughs> No, 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 no. Paul knew what he was saying, and there's actual meaning to this. All right, but what I think is interesting is his reaction. Like, that was not cool. Paul was very well aware of how these things are supposed to run, and that was out of bounds. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. This was likely a reference to something in Ezekiel chapter 13, 10 through 16. Ezekiel denounces false prophets in this way. He calls them plastered walls <laughs> over whitewashed. So those false prophets that Ezekiel's talking about, your whitewashed plastered walls and the Lord's going to uh, bring divine judgment to you. And so Paul is doing, making a reference to that. He's saying, you're so false like that, like what Ezekiel is saying. And he calls them whitewashed walls. And these, these guys would have known exactly, they, remember, they were professionals with the law. They would have known exactly what Paul was saying. And so Paul is kind of just triggered and he calls him this thing. And then he goes on to say, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Okay, here's where we see this the equal ground. Paul knows exactly what the law is. Paul knows all of the rules here. And that was not right. You haven't even judged me yet. You don't even know what I've done, if I've done anything wrong yet, and yet I've received punishment. And so what he's doing here, this is the conflict. He's kind of turning things around on them. This authority figure is now being kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Condemned for his actions. And that's something you just don't do. But Paul's confident in where he stands. He has a good conscience about where he's been. However, let me ask you this. Do you think it was right for Paul to respond this way? Yes or no? Some of you guys might, might say, yeah, he was very right in doing this. And some of us might say, no, because this is still an authority figure. And so let's see what happens next. He says, why are you sitting there judging me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you ordered me, struck, me to be struck. And then verse 4 says, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul confesses his shortcoming there. He says, I, no, I shouldn't have done that. Exodus says, you should not revile your ruler. So regardless of whether or not he was right and I was, or he was wrong and I was right, I should have never spoken up to that. And that's a, real, that's a really big lesson for us because sometimes we feel like we have the authority to speak out like that to, to, to people of authority. But God doesn't like that. He wants us to respect people and pray for them and intercede for them and, and, and approach them in love and, and, and that kind of thing, right? And so he says, I didn't know. Now, this is interesting, and this is kind of just a side, side thing. Many people think that Paul perhaps didn't know because of his poor eyesight. 
I don't know if you've heard of this, but a lot of people think that Paul couldn't see very well. There's a few passages in Galatians where he's doing his greeting and he's, he's really commending the people in Galatia for their generosity and their good hospitality. He says, I could testify that if you could, you would gouge your own eyes and give them to me, right? It's almost like I can't see very well. Well, why? Well, maybe it's that blinding light that he experienced. Who knows? Or maybe it was the fact that he's been stoned and hit in the head a little too hard. Who knows? But a lot of people uh, kind of think that Paul didn't know that Ananias was the high priest because he just couldn't see. Okay? It's very possible. And nevertheless, Paul admits his guilt or his, his wrongdoing here, and he says, I didn't know. You know, because the, you're right, the Bible says, or Scripture says, not to revile a ruler not to speak evil of a ruler. And so that is the conflict. The next thing I want to show you is the clamor or the commotion that happens next. Um, and that's in verse six, it says this. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council. He said this, this is, I think is clever. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, just a little quick review for those of you who remember, if not, the Sadducees were more of a, of a liberal party, kind of just to kind of connect it to today's, you know, kind of leadership. And then the Pharisees were more of a conservative party. But the Pharisees believed in resurrection power and they believed in like divine beings like angels and that kind of thing. The Sadducees did not. They, they believe that there is no resurrection. Once you die, it's done. You can't come back to life. And so they're the ones who had a really big problem with Lazarus, if you remember that. And they're the ones who still had a big problem with Jesus also talking about the resurrection. And what Paul's doing here is he's, <laughs> he knows their trigger points. And he's bringing this thing, but he's not lying. He says, he says um, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The resurrection of Jesus is the central truth of Christianity, and this is what Paul's testifying to. Here he asserts that the issue was his belief and proclamation that, of that truth, that Jesus was resurrected. And so belief in the resurrection was commonly held by the Pharisees, but not the Sadducees, and so you can see them just kind of, no, we're not going to do this resurrection thing. But that's exactly what Paul is testifying to. Verse 7, And when he had said this, it says, A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, if you can just imagine what that might have looked like. If I'm Lysias, Claudius Lysias, the person who called them to try Paul in the first place, I'm probably scratching my head wondering, what is going on here? What is it about Paul that people just can't figure out? And why can't I figure out anything about Paul? And so this great clamor arose, and it says, And some of the scribes of the Pharisees, of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. Now I want you to look at the language that's used here. Contended sharply. They're probably yelling at one another, probably right at each other's face. Because here's what happens next. Uh, he, the, the Pharisees say, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, so they're just not having an argument. 
Now they're pushing and shoving, and who knows what else, right? The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So who knows what's going on with Paul also? The, the guy's just standing in the midst of all this. And so the tribune, afraid of what would happen to him, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, here's something very interesting. If you guys know where the Sanhedrin meant, met, it was in that portion of the temple that Paul was accused of for bringing a Gentile in. Here we have Claudius Lysias and his soldiers going in there and taking Paul out, okay? This is just the kind of authority that the Romans had, but still, the, Ro the, the Jews aren't going to say anything about the Romans, right? And so afraid that the, he's going to get torn to pieces because these two groups are just getting at it, I can't even imagine such a place. You're not just having an argument, you're fighting now? Whoa! And you guys are the leaders? You know? And here's Paul. All he did was testify to the resurrection, and that's, that's why he's there. That's why he's being condemned. And then still, no answers for the Roman tribune. And so... Here's what happens next. There's this source of courage for Paul, because if you can imagine just Paul, since he's got to Rome, or sorry, to Jerusalem, he's been beat up once or twice. I mean, he just got hit in the face for, for nothing, you know? Paul's probably feeling very discouraged. You know, sometimes I get discouraged just because someone gave me a wrong look. You know what I'm talking about? But what if people were actually telling you to your face, like you... <laughs> you're terrible and they're going to hit you and then you're being beat up by by these people this is something that's potentially very discouraging and then here's what's beautiful though this is the beginning of the lord's providential protection and this is what we're going to look at next week the lord's providential protection over paul because at from this point forward paul's no longer in charge of his destiny paul's no longer even able to decide where he's going to go next he's at the mercy of the Romans. He is, he is bound by them. He is a prisoner to the Romans now. And so he's not in control anymore. He's not in charge and nobody can help him. None of his friends can help him at this point, except for God. There's this providential protection that's over him. And if you just saw this, if you just imagined the Sanhedrin, there's Paul standing and it could have gone real bad. But God Put Lysias there, Claudius Lysias, the tribune, to get him out of that situation, to protect him. And this is God's way of just taking care of his own. And then what happens next is beautiful. Check this out in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Who stood by him? Jesus. The following night, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to Paul and he says, hey, Paul, take courage. Now, if Jesus appeared to me, I would immediately take courage. And he says this, As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, the reason why I think this is such a big deal is because Paul had plans to go to Rome. He really wanted to go to Rome. In fact, if we read Romans 1, 8 through 12, it says, For I long to see you as he's writing to the Romans. He longed to be there. And in his itinerary, as he was traveling back to Jerusalem, he had plans to go to Rome and then to Spain, right? And now he's, inca he's incarcerated in the sense that he's bound. He no longer has the ability to make his own plans. And Jesus himself says, hey, take courage. 
you've done well here in Jerusalem. You've testified here in Jerusalem. You did it. So you must now go to Rome. Wow, I get to go to Rome? That's awesome. And Jesus is saying this? Well, if Jesus is saying it, it's going to happen. And here's what we know next. And we're going to stop here for today's passage. But here's what we know next is that although Paul was bound, he does make it to Rome. Okay? And he does uh, do ministry in Rome. And the way he's incarcerated is just God's providence. Because he's under house arrest. He's able to have guests over. He's able to just uh, kind of do what he needs to do. But he's still technically under arrest. Right? Under house arrest. But nevertheless... Paul finds great comfort, great courage to just being in the presence of the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so with that, let's do our takeaways. I'm going to try to fast forward here a little bit. (laughs) First takeaway is this. A conscience uninformed of biblical truth will not necessarily pass accurate judgments. This is important for us to know. Here's the thing. Sometimes we feel we have a clear conscience and we're far from it. But sometimes we know we know we're in the wrong, right? Why? Because we have enough biblical truth to have that understanding. And so the Bible commends a good conscience. The Bible commends a conscience that's well informed of truth. In fact, check out Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, and 1, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, it's love that's well informed by the scriptures. We know how to love one another. It's issued by that and we are sincere and we know, we know what we're doing. All right. It's well informed love. It's not just this blind thing. It's why? Because we know the word of God and we know what Jesus has instructed us and shown us and therefore, that's how we ought to live out. Hebrews 13, 18 says this, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. See how the Bible commands a clear conscience? Let me ask you this. How's your conscience? Don't answer. <laughs> I know you were eager to answer. Is, is your conscience well informed by, by, by biblical truth? You know? Really, it's something for us to self-evaluate, because if it's not, then how can you judge yourself whether or not you're in the right or wrong? You know, it could be that you have this, this life of habitual sin. And, and, and did you know that when you are uh, ensnared or, let's say, entrapped and they're caught into this habitual sin, you no longer have this sense of uh, conviction for what you're doing? And the Bible kind of describes it as a seared conscience. And I I kind of want to show you a little bit about that. Um, Let's see. It says, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that some will depart from the faith because of the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. Lies, habitual lying, habitual sin sears our conscience to the point where we no longer consider right from wrong. It's just lost. And so in order to keep those convictions nice and strong and healthy, we have to be able, we, no, we have to, we have to dive into the scriptures. We have to know the truth of the word of God. Amen? Okay. And so with that comes this full assurance of faith. How many of you guys are just so sure of your faith? Don't answer that either. Except you did. You're like, yeah, I know where I'm going, right? That's what happens when we see the scriptures and when we see that we're saved by grace through Christ alone. We should have that full assurance of faith. 
There should be nothing in this world that makes you doubt that. This full assurance of faith only comes by the gospel at work. It is the result of salvation, justification, and sanctification. That word sanctification, if you're part of one of our discipleship groups, it comes up a lot. It is the process of being more or made more into Christ, Christ's image. It is the process of being well informed of biblical truth. It's what changes us, really. And if you don't have a clear conscience, if you feel like, yeah, I don't, I don't even have that assurance of faith. I don't know what's going to happen to me if I die today. Um, let me ask you, how much do you read the scriptures? How well do you know the one whom you call Lord, Jesus Christ? And if you don't, I urge you, come talk to me. I will get you discipled. All right. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know how awesome he is. And I want you to know that the word of God has power to change lives, to set the captive free. For that is why Jesus came into this world. He took on flesh to die so that we would be saved and we can only be saved through him. And so what are you doing? Take this gift, receive it, run with it, grow with it, be transformed by it. And I promise you, you will have that assurance of faith. But just going back to back to that takeaway. A conscience uninformed of biblical truth will not necessarily pass accurate judgments. So dive into the word, know what it's saying, and then you will know whether you're right in the right or in the wrong. Takeaway number two, it is good to admit error. All right, I did this a kids, away kids takeaway. Kiddos, if you're wrong, it's okay to say I'm wrong. All right, adults, guys, if we're wrong, it's okay to say we're wrong. It's okay to admit error. Remember in verse five, Paul admits that he did not realize Ananias was the high priest. And he says, I shouldn't have done that really by quoting the text from Exodus. So Paul responds somewhat aggressively, which is what we do, especially when you know, hey, that wasn't cool, man. You know, but nevertheless, we need to be as Christ was. See, this is the difference between Paul and Christ because we think, man, Paul was amazing. Christ was in that same situation. What did Christ do? He stood there quietly, gently, and lovingly. He knew that these men were in the wrong, and he did not do anything to them. He just stood there like a lamb, ready to be slaughtered. This is amazing. Paul couldn't do that. You know, he kind of lashed off, and I, my heart breaks because Jesus had every right to say something. He had every right to call them these whitewashed walls or whatever else. He had every right to just say something to them, but he just zipped the lip. And that's such a display of humility. That's such a display of, of love towards even those whom we sometimes may call enemies or we disagree with. That's a huge lesson for us to take, right? It's okay. And it's good to admit error. And Paul did that. And so we must do the same. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 through 32 says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. How many of you guys truly take the time to judge yourself, to really think about Am I in the right or am I in the wrong? Because many times we assume we're in the right just because we're so, so awesome, right? Like you, you are your biggest fan. I'm pretty sure about it, all right? How many of you guys actually take the time to judge yourself? It says, really judge ourselves truly so that we would not be judged, 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here's the loving kindness of, of Christ and of God is that even when we're wrong, we are disciplined. And that's a good thing. It's like when a parent disciplines their child, they do that out of love. Why? Because you want them to learn. You want them to grow. And so when you're disciplined, consider that an act of love. Why? Because 
that will refine you, it'll sanctify you so that you would not be condemned with the world. Because that time is coming where we have to face our Lord, our judge, and where will you stand? So it's okay to admit error. It's okay to grow. It's okay to learn from things. You don't have to be right all the time because I promise you, you're not right all the time. You know, ask, ask your wife or your husband, hey, am I right all the time? They'll, they'll be honest with you. All right. So it's good to admit error. We'll, we'll go to our third takeaway. Take courage. Guys, I know this is challenging. I know sometimes it's hard and demoralizing, let's say, to realize that, man, the Christian walk is hard. It's hard to walk according to God's word. But take courage. See, God graciously comforts his, 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 his downcast servants, as you saw here, so much that Scripture calls him the God of all comfort. Did you know that our God is the God of all comfort? First, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5 says, God comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly comfort too. We are comforted through Christ. Really, dig into the word, you, you, word, you will be comforted by it. And not just so that you're comforted, but so that you can also comfort others. We ought to be stirring each other up in faith, right? We ought to be encouraging one another and saying, hey, it's not over. There's a lot to look forward to. I'm still learning to do that. I'm not a very good encourager. But nevertheless, I'm asking God, God, help me encourage others. You know, I want to be a great encourager because I'm encouraged by him very often. I'm, I'm kind of that in the clouds optimistic kind of person. You know, not everybody is. And I don't understand that all the time. It's like, hey, Jesus loves you. Why are you sad? Well, it's life is harder than that. Right. So we ought to learn to be encouraged and then also to <laughs> encourage others. So take courage. God can do this for you. He can encourage us. He can Give us the strength, the, the ability to continue to carry on. And so I challenge you, just dig into his word. Really examine the scriptures so that you have courage and you would have the ability to be refined and be con not conformed to this world, but transformed to the image of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And Lord, although we are challenged by it, we're also comforted, Father, that you love us so much that you were willing to um, refine us, Lord, and remind us that there's a lot of work to do here in this world, Lord. And we ask, Father, that you would transform us to be more and more like you each and every day. And so, Lord, as we leave, we ask, Father, that you would help us just courageously walk in a way that reflects you well, that represents you well, for we are ambassadors, Lord Jesus, for you. And so when we don't behave well, when we don't behave according to your word, then others will see that Jesus is not so great. Or we don't want that. We want to reflect you well. So help us do that each and every day. Again, thank you for this time together. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.